Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Um, a lot of you have been here every time. Is my mic on? Yeah. Um, a lot of you have been here every week, and I do, truly do appreciate your faithfulness in coming. And thank you for coming uh, today. If you'll recall on Lesson 1, I referred to the um, Halley Bible Handbook that uh, uh, has been a huge resource for me in developing this series, and it's, it's been very helpful. Um, a very old Bible handbook, as it turns out, originally published in 1927. And I happen to have an old edition. And if you will recall, I mentioned that a remarkable thing about this book, it includes a note on the title page that says the most important page in this book is page 814. Well, I held you in advance, and I know that you have been waited with bated breath to find out what is on page 814. Um, it's not the Playboy centerfold, if that's what you were thinking about. Um, but it's real, it's real interesting. You flip back to page 814, and here's what he says. The most important thing in this book is this simple suggestion, that each church have a congregational plan for Bible reading, and that the pastor's sermon from, be from the part of the Bible read in the past week. I, I just think this is excellent advice, and so, somehow we've gotten away from that. We have sermon series, but it's been several years in our church since we had a, a Bible reference that we took home uh, on one Sunday in, in uh, preparation for the following Sunday. And I, I just thought this was a great little hint to pass on, and I'd like for Mike Long to come in and read that. I'm not sure that he will. But <laughs> still, I just felt like this was an, an interesting way to begin his study of the Holy Bible. Uh, when you think about his book is about the Bible, and he on page one is saying that the, the most important page in the book is that almost the last one. So uh, he thought it was pretty important. I just thought that was that was a good way to wrap this lesson up. Um, let's open with a prayer. Dear Lord, we intend for today day to be a, a period of worship and praise for uh, your work in our world and the involvement that we can have with it. I just ask that the words that I speak today would be the truth, would be appropriate and acceptable in your sight. Amen. Okay. Um, last week we left off with Christ crucified. And we said some significant things about the crucifixion. Uh, it was a perfect sacrifice in keeping with the Hebrew tradition and that he was sinless. He was spotless. He was as gentle as a lamb and as spotless as anyone could ever be. It was a perfect atonement. Uh, he, because he was sinless, he took on the sins of the entire world, the perfect atonement. He was the perfect priest. There had to be a priest there to present the sacrifice. What better priest could you find than the Son of God? And, of course, it was he was also the perfect intermediary between God and man because he was God. He is God. So all of these things came to play in the, uh, the, the crucifixion, and it's, I just thought it was important for us to think about uh, those as we wrap up this lesson. Jesus' last words on the cross was, it is finished. We study those uh, every Good Friday. I don't think he meant that everything was wrapped up. I think that he was referring to the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is about to start. His life certainly 
was finished on earth as far as that part is concerned. But God's plan was not finished. It was just the one part of it, the first part, the old covenant that was that was finished. So a new covenant took its place, just had been suggested by the prophets. And the Hebrew nation, sometimes we forget about this, the Hebrew nation had presented the world with a Messiah, something that they had been talking about and thinking about for 2,000 years. That prophecy culminated in the birth of Christ and the crucifixion. So their part was completed, and they sort of turned the baton over to us. Um, We've looked at a lot of prophecies, um, and one of them that we talked about last week was Daniel's prophecy. We looked at the numbers. You remember the the 770s. Um, Last week we looked at the 77s, and you remember that uh, we determined uh, scholars have looked at those numbers and, and made the calculations and determined that Daniel was right on target um, with his prediction of the birth of Christ. He was only off just a couple of years. Well, there's a second part of that prophecy. He, uh, in, in Daniel's prophecy, Christ had to come and atone for all of our sins before the second temple was destroyed. He did. The second temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So that was one of the things we looked at uh, last week. We talked about a lot of other prophecies that, that have been fulfilled, but a lot of them are yet to be fulfilled. I can go down the list. You can name them as well as I did. In Isaiah, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Well, that hadn't happened yet. We're certainly still training for war. Uh, in Psalms, all the ends of the earth will remember in turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Hadn't happened yet, but uh, we'll get there. And then finally in Daniel, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the kingdom side of Christ. Last week we talked a lot about the priest side of Christ. And we decided that his memory, his ministry here on earth was related to serving as a priest, as a servant king. Later, he will come into his glory and be the king um, of heaven and all of the world. But that has not happened yet. So we're, we're coming along, but we're not there yet. And I skipped a slide there. Um, we're we're 2,000 years since that time, and we're a long way away from fulfilling those prophecies. Um, a fellow named Michael Brown is one that I've mentioned almost every week, probably, uh, because he's presented a, a very interesting book that I found relating to the prophecies. And he also talks about the unfulfilled prophecies, as we'll talk about today. And uh, he suggests a very modern parable that I think tells the story here. He says, suppose you've got two friends that owe you a lot of money. And one of those friends comes to you and says, I can pay half of what I owe, but I need a little bit more time to come up with the rest. The other guy comes in and says, 
I can't pay you anything that I owe. Will you give me a little more time to come up with what I owe you? Which one of those are you going to trust the most? I think the answer is very clear, and it's a very, uh, a very vivid example of the way we need to trust God. I mean, all of these prophecies, uh, tons of them, have already come into play. God just needs a little more time, maybe another 2,000 years, who knows, to come to fulfill those remaining prophecies. Um, so before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, let's look um, at what, ha- what we have accomplished and then think in terms of how it fits in with what we think we can accomplish and fit in and, and how it fits in with our role in God's plan. Um, I'm convinced that God's plan for us has three components. Uh, the first are the natural. It's a natural component. These are the natural laws that God put in, in place at the time of creation. And if you'll remember Genesis, he put those laws in place and said, it is good, and he blessed it. Um, Those are the natural laws of nature that we depend on every day. Water flows downhill, always has, always will. If anything were to interrupt that law of nature, we'd be in a heap of trouble. So God established those laws of nature in a very dependable way, and because they are dependable, we can set our lives and plan our future in accordance with those natural laws. Nothing that we can do, for the most part, is going to change those laws. We can build a dam on a river, but eventually the water is going to flow to the ocean. Always has, always will. Dams are temporary things. Water is going to get around it one way or another. Um, God can also make those uh, changes in those natural laws. We call those miracles. Okay, the human component. God created us all with free will. Again, you go back to Genesis. God created us in his image, and he said, that is good, and he blessed it. I believe that God knew that we were going to screw up when he created us. But if it had not been for the free will, we would not know how to love him. And I think the next part of it is perhaps even more significant. Without free will, we would not be able to understand God's grace to us, God's ultimate love. Just think about that way. We we normally think about our love for God needs to be a free choice. But think about how we appreciate God's love to us. Only because we recognize that we're sinful people and because we understand our free will to express it in love to each other. That's the way that we understand God's ultimate grace to us. Okay, third component is the God component. Um, I believe that God at times is going to intervene with the laws of nature. I know good and well God is going to intervene at times in the ways of men, the problems that we create in society. We call these miracles. We talked about a lot of them, and we'll get a little bit more into that. I'm convinced also that God expects us to be involved with his plan. Those of us that worship him, I'm convinced that he wants us to help him make that plan happen. If we don't, well, I think God will somehow come along and do something to keep that plan in place. And uh, we'll talk about how that happens in just a few minutes. Um, So God expects us to keep things on track. Um, And let's look at a few things that have happened in history that we know about, and I think you'll see how these laws come into play. 
You remember in Exodus, God called Moses and burning in the burning bush, Moses responded. I believe that Moses could have walked away. Maybe somebody besides before Moses did walk away. But Moses, we know, responded. But now think about Moses. Moses didn't really say, Yay, John, I can do that. Moses said, Gee, Monday, I'm not sure I can handle that all by myself. And then he thought a little bit and said, Maybe if I get my brother to help me. Maybe if I get Aaron, he speaks a whole lot better than I, I do. But I've got a way with the Pharaoh. Maybe together we can make God's plan work. And he did. But he didn't do it all by himself. Pharaoh had to have somebody twist his arm, and it wasn't Moses. It was God that produced the miracle, sent the plagues to enable Moses to then participate in leading the Hebrew people out of the promise, out of the Egypt into the promised land. All right. Um, I think the first lesson we talked about, uh, the first attack on Jerusalem, when uh, the Assyrians were there knocking on the door. They had, had Jerusalem completely surrounded. They had all of their weapons of war out there ready to throw the rocks across the walls of Jerusalem. They even had control of the water supply coming into Jerusalem. It was a very, very bad time. Um, the Assyrians had already run all over um, um, Israel, the northern kingdom, and they had wiped out many of the cities around Jerusalem. Um, it was a very difficult time. We needed a miracle. Isaiah was the prophet. Isaiah prayed, talked to King Hezekiah, that was the king of Israel at the time, or Judah at the time. And God sent a miracle. Uh, our Bible tells us that there were 185,000 Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem at the time. Overnight, they all got sick. The few that were that remained limped back to Assyria, and can you imagine the general goes up and knocks on the general's door, the king's door in Assyria, and said, hey, king, I'm sorry about this. Those guys got a better God than we got. Well, praise the Lord for that. God sent a miracle, and it happened. Babylonian exile. Very difficult time. Sounded very difficult for the people that were involved, and certainly it was a difficult time. But God turned that difficult time into, into something that was very positive. He knew that the Hebrew nation needed to get away from the idol worship that they had been involved with. He knew that they needed a time to collect their thoughts, to, uh, to put some of their writings, a lot of their writings actually, in a new form that would be preserved for the history from then on. He knew it was time to introduce a new covenant. And he had Daniel and, Jer and Jeremiah and Ezekiel involved in the Babylonian exile, and they produced the prophecies that we, we think, think paved the way for the new covenant. Again, God's plan in action. we got a few more success stories here. Christ came. Miracle on top of miracles, a virgin birth, um, a crucifixion, someone rising from the dead. According to the laws of nature, when you're dead, you stay dead. Uh -huh. God produced a miracle. Okay, um, after the crucifixion, and uh, you talk about a miracle, 
You've got 12 disciples that were basically uneducated, totally bewildered men. Their leader was gone, and somehow they started the church that we know of today. Now, how on earth did that happen? It started with 12 men and a lot of influence with God. I'm convinced of that. How else could it possibly have happened? All of the people around them were hostile to them. Talk about a miracle on top of miracles. How else could that possibly have happened? Something mysterious is going on here, folks. Okay. And the new, new church spread and succeeds in spite of persecution. The first 200 years, the Roman persecution was just unbelievable. There were several waves of it. And somehow, martyrs uh, survived and led the way. Somehow, God's plan continued. Um, and in all of this, we see God and man working together. Um, it's an interesting. It's interesting how those roles come into play. Um, in every case, we've got separate jobs. God provides the miracle part, the supernatural part. Man provides the legwork, the leadership, getting out there and getting the jo God the job done. Man prays, God responds. God calls, man responds. God opens doors, but men, and women of course, do the leadership part of accomplishing the task. It's a partnership under the strength of a very, very mighty leader, somebody that we can all have our ultimate faith and confidence in. Okay, so where are we today? I'm told that there are two billion Christians around the world. Um, so we've accomplished something. We've got a church worldwide. But Jerusalem is surrounded again. This time, instead of 185,000 mad Assyrians armed with spears and rocks, um, we've got an enemy that's potentially armed with a nuclear weapon. Jerusalem is, is surrounded again. A difficult time. We see um, hostility and threats, hatred, poverty everywhere. Um, we see in a lot of cases people in power that are not about to relinquish that power. They maintain that power by controlling a lot of people that are under them and they control with a very strong fist. Um, we don't see a whole lot of evidence of uh, people not training for war anymore. We don't see nations beating their swords into uh, pruning hooks or whatever. It's a difficult time. Things are pretty grim. Um, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he told them about three or four days before his, his persecution and trial that he was going to die. He also told them that during their lifetime, the temple, we're talking about the second temple in Jerusalem, it would be destroyed. Um, shocked them. They really did not know what to say. Um, what, could we, what could he say to them that would explain what was about to happen? Um, it's described in Matthew 24. And today, if you brought your Bible, Martha's going to read for us, but it's uh, contrary to the first three times. You'll have an opportunity to follow along with us, uh, with, with Martha as she reads. She'll skip a couple of verses, but for the most part, um, this is um, uh, a scripture that you can follow. Well, she's going to be reading from NIV, which I think probably most of you have. 
We're going to start with Matthew 24, 3 through 8. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out for no one watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Okay, this sounds more uh, familiar. This sounds like more like what's going on right now, doesn't it? Wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and tragedy, uh, forest fires and floods and all of those other things. Um, uh, we've experienced in the last 2,000 years a lot of wars. We've seen a lot of earthquakes. Are these the pangs of labor that Jesus uh, talked about? Um, labor lasting 2,000 years is a little hard to imagine, but maybe that's the kind of thing that Jesus was talking about. Maybe Jesus is telling us that we've got to put up with these years of tribulation before he'll come back. Well, as far as we know, he hasn't come back. If, he, if he's come back, we missed him. That would be very bad. Um, but then he says, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed when we've got wars and rumors of wars, famine and earthquake, false prophets coming. We've sure had our fair share of, of false prophets. Do not be alarmed, he says. Boy, that's a, a lot of confidence, isn't it? I think really he's saying is trust in the Lord, understand God's plan, understand that it's not finished yet, and God is still in control. So then we move on into the next part. Honey, you want to read again? This is Matthew 24, 30, 31. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Sounds like Daniel, doesn't it? Really, it does. And then we'll skip down to verse 34. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay. Um, generation, uh, the word generation, um, in, in the Life Applications Bible is interpreted as race. And uh, I think that uh, that for us today, when they were there, Christ, I don't think, was talking about the generation of the people that were listening to his voice. I think he was talking about the, the era. Um, and the Life Applications Bible indicates that we should see, uh, interpret that as being our race, the, the human race, will not pass away before these things have happened. Um, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But here we're talking about wars and rumors of wars and nations rising up against nation. Isaiah was talking about um, all nations coming together in peace. So a little bit of contrary there. I think that we're talking about the labor pains before the final coming when the kingdom will be 
established. Um, and you look at the part that Martha just read, Christ will come from the clouds of power and glory. That's the kingship of Christ. That's what Isaiah was anticipating, and that really is what the Hebrew people were hoping for. They were just about 2,000 years too soon, or perhaps 3,000, 4,000, who knows. We haven't gotten there yet. But I think the promise is clear. Christ's kingship will be established. Um, and then the faithful will be gathered up. All of this will happen before the human race is destroyed. Okay, now uh, continue to read, honey. Matthew 24, 36, 39. The disciples asked, when will it happen? No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. All right. If you continue reading there, you'll uh, discover the part of, of Scripture that's commonly referred to as a rapture. Um, the next part of it, it says that when two women are there in the, on the thrashing floor, one may disappear and the other one will still be there. Um, and I, I have chosen not to read that um, because there are people that, uh, including um, uh, the, the fellow here, um, Halley, that we should be careful about a literal interpretation of that. So I'm going to leave that up to you. Um, of course, if you've read the Left Behind series, I imagine that all of you have read one or two of the books. Um, it's pretty pretty graphic. Um, that's totally a, a literal interpretation. And that's, uh, I'll leave that up to you. You can uh, take it or leave it depending on the way you want to respond to that. But it's amazing to me that Christ says, no, one's that, no one knows the day or the hour, not even me. But he's saying, get ready. Okay, continue reading there, 24, 42 through 44. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief were coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Okay, so what should we do? Uh, here I'm going to sound like I'm preaching, I guess, so I'll be careful about this. I, I do not have a license to do that. Um, so what should we do? I think all of you know the answer. Um, I've given a, a, a few suggestions there. Um, pray for peace, guidance, and goodwill. I think that's something that we could do. If we've, got, if we've got two billion Christians all over the world, can you imagine all of us praying for peace? Wouldn't that send a message? God knows what he's doing. But to, to me, it would be wonderful for all of us to be praying for peace at the same time. Okay, the second item there, I, I don't want to sound political, but trust in the Lord. As, as I have prepared this lesson series, and I've, I've told you a number of times, I've been inspired by this thing a whole lot more than you, than you have, I'm sure. But I am convinced that our trust needs to be in the Lord, not in the government. And uh, we hear politics all of the time, and it's so easy to think of us in a situation of recognizing that our protection, um, our everything, comes from the government. And if you just look beyond that, 
and think in terms of our trust coming from the Lord, for me it relieves an awful lot of anxiety. I think I'd rather uh, trust in the Lord than I had any government, the U.S. government or anybody else. If this changes your outlook. I suggest that we support faith-based missions. Um, there are a lot of charities out there that seem to be motivated in the wrong direction. And we, re we, we read about the cases where we send money to Africa that we think is going to build a, a, a well to serve impoverished uh, people, and we find that that money has been used for something else, something we didn't intend for at all. So we need to be careful about that. And the bottom line there is something that certainly comes from uh, our church experience. Support the church with your prayers, your gifts, and your service. Pretty, pretty, a, a pretty simple solution, if I could be that simplistic. There's one more thing I want to uh, change gears just a minute. Um, we started with Jerusalem when we started this series. We looked at Genesis and we determined that when Abraham started his journey at the very beginning of the, uh, of the Hebrew uh, history, he met a king from Jerusalem, Melchizedek. Bruce, is that good enough? That was good enough? Bruce has uh, uh, helped me pronounce that, that word, and I appreciate it. Jerry, you also helped me. I appreciate your contribution. You've got another pronunciation, don't you? Well, there's probably a third, the real one. Okay, well tell, well, well tell us what it is, Jerry. We don't know, but there were no tape recorders back then. Okay, all right. Okay, okay. My point is, it, it started in Jerusalem. Solomon built his temple in Jerusalem. After the exile, the Hebrews returned there. Jesus died there. He rose from the dead there. The Christian church started there. So something magical goes on in Jerusalem. All right, we're going to wrap things up now. I want Martha to read from Revelation, and let's, let's hear about the new Jerusalem. This is in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throng saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Okay, so we've completed the story. Started in Jerusalem, we wound up there. I don't know whether we're talking about a, a geographic place of Jerusalem. Um, the writer of Revelation says that the, he saw the city coming down out of the clouds. So maybe uh, the new Jerusalem will be somewhere in the clouds. But it's interesting that the cradle of, re of creation started right there, very near Jerusalem. Um, and it winds up there, certainly references to Jerusalem. I think God has got a map laid out. It began millions of years ago, uh, and it's still in play, and he's going to make it happen one way or another. It's interesting the way that he wrapped this thing up. 
Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And we get back to those words in, in Psalms also, where it says, The Lord has spoken, and he will not change his mind. <laughs> that's pretty, pretty confident. Maybe that's the kind of thing that uh, Jesus was saying well, when he said, Do not be alarmed when we've got wars and rumors of wars and uh, earthquakes and fire. Do not be alarmed. God is trustworthy and true. Okay, um, I've got a closing prayer here, and uh, it's something that's all familiar, familiar with all of you. And um, if you'd like to, to, to join in with me. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be thou our guide while life shall last in our eternal home. Amen. Thank you all very much. Good job. Good job, Martha.